Chapter 13 of How to Camp Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. How to Camp Out by John M. Gould. Chapter 13 Hygienic Notes by Dr. Elliot Coos. This chapter is taken in full from a work on ornithology written by Dr. Coos of the Smithsonian Institution. It is the advice of an accomplished naturalist and sportsman to his fellow naturalists, but is equally adapted to the young camper. Hardly anyone can write more understandingly on the subjects here presented than the doctor, who has had long experience with the army, both in the field and garrison, and is an enthusiastic student of natural history besides. The remarks upon alcoholic stimulants are especially recommended to the reader, coming as they do from an army officer, and not a temperance reformer. Those who wish to become familiar with the details of bird collecting will find a treasure in the doctor's book, Field Ornithology, comprising a manual of instruction for procuring, preparing, and preserving birds, and a checklist of North American birds, by Dr. Elliot Coos, USA, Salem, Naturalists Agency. Accidents. The secret of safe climbing is never to relax one hold until another is secured. It is in spirit equally applicable to scrambling over rocks, a particularly difficult thing to do safely with a loaded gun. Test rotten, slippery, or otherwise suspicious holds before trusting them. In lifting the body up anywhere, keep the mouth shut, breathe through the nostrils, and go slowly. In swimming, waste no strength unnecessarily in trying to stem a current. Yield partly, and land obliquely lower down. If exhausted, float. The slightest motion of the hands will ordinarily keep the face above water. In any event, keep your wits collected. In fording deeply, a heavy stone in the hands above water will strengthen your position. Never sail a boat experimentally. If you are no sailor, take one with you, or stay on land. In crossing a high, narrow footpath, never look lower than your feet. The muscles will work true if not confused with faltering instructions from a giddy brain. On soft ground, see what, if anything, has preceded you. Large hoof marks generally mean that the way is safe. If none are found, inquire for yourself before going on. Quicksand is the most treacherous, because far more dangerous than it looks. But I have seen a mule's ears finally disappear in genuine mud. Cattle paths, however erratic, commonly prove the surest way out of a difficult place, whether of uncertain footing or dense undergrowth. Taking cold. This vague household word indicates one or more of a long, varied train of unpleasant affections nearly always traceable to one or the other of only two causes, sudden change of temperature and unequal distribution of temperature. No extremes of heat or cold can alone affect this result. Persons frozen to death do not take cold during the process, but if a part of the body be rapidly cooled, as by evaporation from a wet article of clothing, or by sitting in a draught of air, the rest of the body remaining at an ordinary temperature, or if the temperature of the whole be suddenly changed by going out into the cold, or especially by coming into a warm room, there is much liability of trouble. There is an old saying, when the air comes through a hole, say your prayers to save your soul. And I should think almost anyone could get a cold with a spoonful of water on the wrist held to a keyhole. 
singular as it may seem, sudden warming when cold is more dangerous than the reverse. Everyone has noticed how soon the handkerchief is required on entering a heated room on a cold day. Frostbite is an extreme illustration of this. As the Irishman said on picking himself up, it was not the fall but stopping so quickly that hurt him. It is not the lowering of the temperature to the freezing point, but its subsequent elevation that devitalizes the tissue. This is why rubbing with snow or bathing in cold water is required to restore safely a frozen part. The arrested circulation must be very gradually re-established, or inflammation, perhaps mortification, ensues. General precautions against taking cold are almost self-evident in this light. There is ordinarily little, if any, danger to be apprehended from wet clothes, so long as exercise is kept up, for the glow about compensates for the extra cooling by evaporation. Nor is a complete drenching more likely to be injurious than wetting of one part, but never sit still wet, and in changing rub the body dry. There is a general tendency, springing from fatigue, indolence, or indifference, to neglect damp feet that is to say, to dry them by the fire, but this process is tedious and uncertain. I would say especially, off with muddy boots and sodden socks at once. Dry stockings and slippers after a hunt may make just the difference of your being able to go out again, or never. Take care never to check perspiration. During this process, the body is in a somewhat critical condition, and the sudden arrest of the function may result disastrously, even fatally. One part of the business of perspiration is to equalize body temperature, and it must not be interfered with. The secret of much that is said about bathing when heated lies here. A person overheated, panting, it may be, with throbbing temples and a dry skin, is in danger partly because the natural cooling by evaporation from the skin is denied, and this condition is sometimes not far from a sunstroke. Under these circumstances, a person of fairly good constitution may plunge into the water with impunity, even with benefit, but if the body be already cooling by sweating, rapid abstraction of heat from the surface may cause internal congestion, never unattended with danger. Drinking ice water offers a somewhat parallel case. Even on stopping to drink at the brook, when flushed with heat, it is well to bathe the face and hands first, and to taste the water before a full draught. It is a well-known excellent rule not to bathe immediately after a full meal, because during digestion the organs concerned are comparatively engorged, and any sudden disturbance of the circulation may be disastrous. The imperative necessity of resisting drowsiness under extreme cold requires no comment. In walking under a hot sun, the head may be sensibly protected by green leaves or grass in the hat. They may be advantageously moistened, but not enough to drip about the ears. Under such circumstances, the slightest giddiness, dimness of sight, or confusion of ideas should be taken as a warning of possible sunstroke, instantly demanding rest, and shelter if practicable. Hunger and fatigue are more closely related than they might seem to be. One is a sign that the fuel is out, and the other asks for it. Extreme fatigue, indeed, destroys appetite, this simply means temporary incapacity for digestion. But even far short of this, food is more easily digested and better relished after a little preparation of the furnace. On coming home tired, it is much better to make a leisurely and reasonably nice toilet than to eat at once, 
or to lie still thinking how tired you are. After a change and a wash you may feel like a new man, and go to the table in capital state. Whatever dietetic irregularities a high state of civilization may demand or render practicable, a normally healthy person is inconvenienced almost as soon as his regular mealtime passes without food, and few can work comfortably or profitably fasting over six or eight hours. Eat before starting. If for a day's tramp, take a lunch. The most frugal meal will appease if it do not satisfy hunger, and so postpone its urgency. As a small scrap of practical wisdom, I would add, keep the remnants of the lunch if there be any, for you cannot always be sure of getting in to supper. STIMULATION When cold, fatigued, depressed in mind, and on other occasions, you may feel inclined to resort to artificial stimulus. Respecting this many-sided theme, I have a few words to offer, of direct bearing on the collector's case. It should be clearly understood in the first place that a stimulant confers no strength whatever. It simply calls the powers that be into increased action, at their own expense. Seeking real strength in stimulus is as wise as an attempt to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. You may gather yourself to leap the ditch, and you clear it, but no such muscular energy can be sustained. Exhaustion speedily renders further expenditure impossible. But now suppose a very powerful mental impression be made, say the circumstance of a succession of ditches in front and a mad dog behind. If the stimulus of terror be sufficiently strong, you may leap on till you drop senseless. Alcoholic stimulus is a parallel case, and is not seldom pushed to the same extreme. Under its influence you never can tell when you are tired. The expenditure goes on, indeed, with unnatural rapidity, only it is not felt at the time. But the upshot is, you have all the original fatigue to endure and recover from, plus the fatigue resulting from over-excitation of the system. Taken as a fortification against cold, alcohol is as unsatisfactory as a remedy for fatigue. Insensibility to cold does not imply protection. The fact is, the exposure is greater than before. The circulation and respiration being hurried, the waste is greater. And, as sound fuel cannot be immediately supplied, the temperature of the body is soon lowered. The transient warmth and glow over the system has both cold and depression to endure. There is no use in borrowing from yourself and fancying you are richer. Secondly, the value of any stimulus, except in a few exigencies of disease or injury, is in proportion not to the intensity but to the equableness and durability of its effect. This is one reason why tea, coffee, and articles of corresponding qualities are preferable to alcoholic drinks. They work so smoothly that their effect is often unnoticed, and they stay by well. The friction of alcohol is tremendous in comparison. A glass of grog may help a veteran over the fence, but no one, young or old, can shoot all day on whiskey. I have had so much experience in the use of tobacco as a mild stimulant that I am probably no impartial judge of its merits. I will simply say I do not use it in the field, because it indisposes to muscular activity, and favors reflection when observation is required, and because temporary abstinence provokes the morbid appetite and renders the weed more grateful afterwards. Thirdly, undue excitation of any physical function is followed by a corresponding depression, on the simple principle that action and reaction are equal. 
and the balance of health turns too easily to be willfully disturbed. Stimulation is a draft upon vital capital, when interest alone should suffice. It may be needed at times to bridge a chasm, but habitual living beyond vital income infallibly entails bankruptcy in health. The use of alcohol in health seems practically restricted to purposes of sensuous gratification on the part of those prepared to pay a round price for this luxury. The three golden rules here are, never drink before breakfast, never drink alone, and never drink bad liquor. Their observance may make even the abuse of alcohol tolerable. Serious objections, for a naturalist at least, are that science, viewed through a glass, seems distant and uncertain, while the joys of rum are immediate and unquestionable, and that intemperance, being an attempt to defy certain physical laws, is therefore eminently unscientific. Besides the above good advice by Dr. Coos, the following may prove useful to the camper. Diarrhea may result from overwork and gluttony combined, and from eating indigestible or uncooked food, and from imperfect protection of the stomach. Remove the cause and the effect will cease. A flannel bandage six to twelve inches wide worn around the stomach is good as a preventative and cure. The same causes may produce cholera morbus, symptoms, violent vomiting and purging, faintness and spasms in the arms and limbs. Unless accompanied with cramp, which is not usual, nature will work its own cure. Give warm drinks if you have them. Do not get frightened, but keep the patient warm and well protected from a draft of air. The liability to costiveness and the remedies, therefore, are noted on page 55 of this book. A very rare occurrence, but a constant dread with some people, is an insect crawling into the ear. If you have oil, spirits of turpentine, or alcoholic liquor at hand, fill the ear at once. If you have not these, use coffee, tea, warm water, not too hot, or almost any liquid which is not hurtful to the skin. Marshall Hull's Ready Method in Suffocation, Drowning, etc. First, treat the patient instantly on the spot, in the open air, freely exposing the face, neck, and chest to the breeze, except in severe weather. Second, in order to clear the throat, place the patient gently on the face, with one wrist under the forehead, that all fluid and the tongue itself may fall forward, and leave the entrance into the windpipe free. Third, to excite respiration, turn the patient slightly on his side, and apply some irritating or stimulating agent to the nostrils, such as veratrine, dilute ammonia, etc. Fourth, make the face warm by brisk friction, then dash cold water upon it. Fifth, if not successful, lose no time, but to imitate respiration, place the patient on his face and turn the body gently but completely on the side and a little beyond, then again on the face, and so alternately. Repeat these movements deliberately and perseveringly, fifteen times only in a minute. When the patient lies on the thorax, this cavity is compressed by the weight of the body, and expiration takes place. When he is turned on the side, this pressure is removed, and inspiration occurs. Sixth, when the prone position is resumed, make a uniform and efficient pressure along the spine, removing the pressure immediately, before rotation on the side. The pressure augments the expiration. The rotation commences inspiration. Continue these measures. Seventh, rub the limbs upward with firm pressure and with energy. 
the object being to aid the return of venous blood to the heart. Eighth, substitute for the patient's wet clothing, if possible, such other covering as can be instantly procured, each bystander supplying a coat or cloak, etc. Meantime, and from time to time, to excite inspiration, let the surface of the body be slapped briskly with the hand. Ninth, rub the body briskly till it is dry and warm, then dash cold water upon it, and repeat the rubbing. Avoid the immediate removal of the patient, as it involves a dangerous loss of time. Also the use of bellows or any forcing instrument. Also the warm bath and all rough treatment. Poisons. In all cases of poisoning, the first step is to evacuate the stomach. This should be effected by an emetic, which is quickly obtained, and most powerful and speedy in its operation. Such are powdered mustard, a large tablespoonful in a tumbler full of warm water, powdered alum in half-ounce doses, sulfate of zinc, 10 to 30 grains, tartar emetic, 1 to 2 grains, combined with powdered ipecacuanha, 20 grains, and sulfate of copper, 2 to 5 grains. When vomiting has already taken place, copious draughts of warm water and warm mucilaginous drinks should be given to keep up the effect till the poisoning substance has been thoroughly evacuated. Parting Advice Be independent, but not impudent. See all you can, and make the most of your time. Time is money, and when you grow older you may find it even more difficult to command time than money. End of chapter 13 End of How to Camp Out